six-year-olds are dismissed to junior church at this time. Keep your Bibles open there in Philippians chapter 1. That will be our text this morning. I found an article this week with this title. It said, The Meaning of Life, A Hundred Quotes from Americans on What Keeps Them Going. This survey uh, asked 5,000 adults this question you see on the screen here. 5,000 people were asked, what about your life do you currently find meaningful, fulfilling, or satisfying. What keeps you going and why? This is an interesting question here. I think that it addresses what we might call one of the fundamental components of someone's life. I think how people respond to this question is going to identify what they think is important. This is what they devote their time their energy, their precious resources towards. We might put it this way, how people answer this question is what gets them out of bed in the morning. I thought it'd be interesting to read a couple of the responses for you today. Here's the first. Someone replied, what keeps me going is the idea of being better off than my parents were. I want to get to a point in my life, not where I'm rich, but I can go to the grocery store, the gas station, the movies, or go on vacation and not have to worry about the amount of money in my bank account. I want it to be an afterthought. I'm getting closer to this dream, and that's what's keeping me going. How about this? Reading, my interest in science, medicine, and my friends help keep me going. What keeps me going is the huge number of things I haven't learned, places I haven't been to, activities I haven't tried, and people I haven't met. I like to set vague goals and go in that direction to see where I end up, because as long as it's enjoyable and fulfilling along the way, it was a worthwhile goal. Just two more here. The only thing that makes life worth anything is to contribute to my son's life and send care packages and gifts to my grandchildren. What keeps me going is the will to be better than myself the previous day, to improve myself one day at a time, and to have fun and be happy. The uh, authors of this article I read noted that there were some common themes that appeared in these responses. Some of those common themes include family, money, a job, a hobby, health, or education. Interestingly enough, 80% of respondents did not mention anything that they categorized as faith or spirituality. So I think it'd be fairly accurate to say that the majority of people around us are represented by the quotes that we just read this morning. And I'm curious, what is your evaluation 
of these responses here. Has our culture at large got it right? Is a hobby, a job, your grandkids, science, medicine, something that should keep you going? Although the Apostle Paul was most certainly not a participant in this survey from 2018, he pretty much told us what he's living for in our text this morning. Put it on the screen for you again. Paul says this in uh, the second half of verse 20, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if you had asked Paul, hey, Paul, what are you living for? He wouldn't ramble on about his latest hobby. He wouldn't tell you about a vacation that he's got planned. For Paul, it's a no-brainer. I'm living for Christ. Of course. That's the only thing that makes sense here. And as we begin this morning, I want to challenge all of you, including myself, to ask the question, what are you living for? And not just evaluate how you might answer that question, but to really look at your life and evaluate how you're spending your time, where your resources are going, what you love, and answer it based off of not just your words, but what are your actions revealing about what you're living for? What keeps you going? Could we echo with Paul? For me to live is Christ. That's it. He consumes my life. Before we get to these verses here, I actually want us to back up just a little bit in the book of Philippians and kind of get a bigger picture to understand the context in which Paul makes this statement. It sounds awesome, right? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, when Paul talks about matters of life and death here, this is not hyperbole. He is not sitting on a beach somewhere in the Mediterranean, sipping iced tea and saying, yeah, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Easy to write in that sort of circumstance, right? Well, that is not the situation in which Paul is writing this. Paul actually, at the time of writing Philippians, is imprisoned. We saw, I think, three times in our scripture reading already, Paul says that he is imprisoned. If you want to see just one of those instances, I think it's in verse 13, uh, he mentions that to all the rest, my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, there may be a question you have about when was Paul imprisoned. It is believed that this is the imprisonment that the end of the book of Acts ends with. Long story short, Paul is in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and while he is there, some people see him who hate him. 
and to try and stir up the crowds against the Apostle Paul. They say, this guy is teaching against the law, and he brought a Gentile into the temple. Now, that was a big no-no to bring the Gentile into the temple here. So uh, the people like get into an uproar. They actually are intending to kill Paul, but the Romans intervene, save his life, and instead of him being killed, he's just imprisoned. And Paul is imprisoned in the uh, Jerusalem, Caesarea area for two years in what we might call the lower courts. His trial just kind of stalls. Nothing ever comes of it. So he appeals to Caesar and is transported across the Mediterranean to Rome. And it's while he's there in Rome that the book of Acts actually ends, and we're told that he is under house arrest for two years. So when Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he means it. There's no real certainty about what's going to happen to him. He is waiting a day in which he will stand before Caesar or some other Roman judge, and his trial will be had, and it will be then that it's determined death or release. He's in a bit of a limbo period, if I could call it that, but Paul's difficulties don't end at imprisonment. I want you to notice verse 15. Paul says there are some people who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Jump down to verse 17. He says, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? How could someone preach the gospel and yet be intending to afflict Paul? Well, we don't have like a 100% sure answer on that. We're just kind of dealing with what the text tells us. But here's an idea. Perhaps there are some people who kind of view themselves as in Paul's shadow, so to speak. Maybe they have a bit of a rivalry with the Apostle Paul. Maybe they're jealous of his accomplishments and all of the stuff that he has done for the Lord, and they're sitting there thinking to themselves, how does this former Pharisee, former hater of Jesus, get all of the attention and not me? And so these guys, they hear that Paul is in prison, and maybe they rub their hands a little bit together and they think, huh, now the big guy's locked up. It's my turn to be in the spotlight. And maybe they start preaching Christ, not to spread the gospel, but to enlarge their audience. Maybe they start doing all of the things that they wish they had opportunity to do. And certainly there is a selfish component to this, but Paul says that these guys are actually trying to afflict him. Right? These guys want news to make it back to Paul. Hey, you remember Pastor so-and-so? You know what he's doing? All the people that would have come to you, Paul, they're now going to him. The mission trip that you planned on taking, Paul, Pastor so-and-so gets to do. They want Paul to hear that, and they want him to stew in prison and to think, ah, oh, man, I wish I were out able to do that. These people are using the gospel, the preaching of Christ, to try and get at Paul. Pretty unkind, huh? If I were in Paul's shoes, I could certainly see how that kind of behavior uh, might have the potential to be annoying, to incite some jealousy or hard feelings towards those guys. So when Paul writes for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, his life is not easy. There are difficulties that he is enduring. 
Not only is he in prison, but he has other Christians who are trying to make his life miserable. What is Paul's response to some of these afflictions that he's going through? Notice first, verse 12. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying, my imprisonment has resulted in two awesome things. There's a couple of things that I can be glad about. The first is that the whole imperial guard knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. I want you to think about this for just a second here. Imagine that you are the guard assigned to Paul for the day. And you show up to work, and here's Paul. Do you think he's just going to make small talk with you about the weather? Do you think the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the latest event that has happened in the Roman games? No way. The Apostle Paul, he's going to talk about Jesus. And when the next card comes for his shift... That's another opportunity for Paul to tell this guy how awesome Jesus is so that by the time Philippians is written, he can say the whole imperial guard knows that I'm here for Christ. Second, he says that people have been emboldened by his imprisonment to preach the gospel themselves. Maybe what's going on here is that other people see the apostle Paul imprisoned and they know, I got to step up. Paul is in prison. Who's preaching the gospel? Who's being bold for their faith? It's my turn now. And Paul says, this is awesome. I'm thrilled that the gospel is going forth. It's incredible that Paul is able to see good while he's a prisoner. That's not it, though. Remember those people who are trying to oppress him? How does Paul view those people? Look at verse 18. Paul says this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul knows that these people are trying to get under his skin. He knows they're trying to afflict him. He understands all of that, but he says, you know what? The name of Jesus is being declared. That is awesome. I'm going to rejoice at that. And we haven't even made it to verses 20 and 21, in which there is this motto, so to speak, for to me to live is Christ. But already, one thing is obvious about the Apostle Paul. He is all about Jesus. His joy is not contained to his circumstances. If it was, he'd be a pretty depressed guy, huh? He's in prison. Other Christians are coming after him. His joy is in the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's true colors really shine through here. And I want to make the point to you that Paul is not a fair-weather Christian, if I could put it that way. Paul isn't someone who goes through the Christian life, kind of rides the wave, life is going well, he's eager to tell you about all the good things that Jesus has done for him, but as soon as trials come, you never see him around anymore. Or he's awkwardly quiet. No, through good or bad, the Apostle Paul's joy is found in Jesus 
Christ. So now that we have a good grasp on Paul's circumstances when he writes for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, we come now to the section of verses in which Paul begins to think about his future. He's in prison, awaiting a trial before Caesar with his life hanging in the balance. What's going to happen to him? Perhaps it's uncertain. So we pick up in verse 18, the end of verse 18, with these words. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul here speaks confidently about being delivered as a result of the prayers of the church in Philippi and as a result of the spirit of Jesus that is at work here. And there's kind of a question that commentators have that asks, when Paul speaks about deliverance here, he says, I, uh, in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What exactly does Paul mean? There's kind of two schools of thought, maybe a third actually, as to what uh, this deliverance would be. Uh, Some people think that when Paul speaks about deliverance, he means, I know that I'm going to be delivered from prison. My life will be spared. Some people think Paul means, I know that I will be delivered in a salvific sense, in an eternal sense, I will be delivered from this. There's a third option I'm not going to mention. I kind of like the position that takes a little bit of a middle ground here with this. It, It recognizes that Paul could be meaning both are true. Here's what I mean by that. If Paul is released from prison, it would be true to say that he was delivered. And if Paul is executed, it would again be true to say he was delivered. There's something pretty awesome about the Christian perspective on things. There is a sense in which our future may be uncertain. Like Paul, we might not know the outcome of a particular situation, but one thing is certain. We know what happens at the end. We know even if we die, what the outcome is going to be. In another sense, we've read the end of the book. We know what is certain, that Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign, to gather his own, and judge those who are opposed to him. And so as Paul thinks about this future deliverance, whatever that might be exactly, one thing is clear to him. He does have one goal, and that is found in verse 20. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. Commentators think that perhaps at this moment in time, Paul is now thinking about the very day in which he will stand before Caesar for his trial. I want you to think about this for just a second here. I said already that Paul spent two years in prison in the Jerusalem area, and then he's transported to Rome, and he spends another two years as a prisoner. So now we're talking about a collective four years, at least, that Paul has spent 
in prison. And can you imagine the anticipation of this day as he thinks about the trial? I mean, this is four years worth of like a stalemate, and there's a trial coming in which his future will be determined, if I could put it that way. There's a lot riding on this day. And what is Paul's expectation? What is his hope? Could I borrow from the opening illustration? What keeps Paul going, knowing that he is going to stand before Caesar? It's not his release. It's not the prospect of being able to have his independence back and to be reintroduced into society. What keeps Paul going is that through this process, he would not be ashamed, but that he would have courage, he would be bold, that Christ would be honored in his body, whatever the outcome. Life or death, Paul has one thing in mind, that Jesus would be honored. And I want us to stop and think about that for just a second here. What does it mean that Jesus is honored? A couple of translations offer some other words here. They use words like exalted or magnified. A dictionary offered uh, to declare great or to get glory and praise. Maybe simply we could put it this way, that Paul wants Jesus' name to be made great. Paul wants Jesus to be glorified, whatever the outcome of what he's going through. How many of us, put yourself in Paul's shoes, four years in prison, thinking about the big day, if you will, how many of us would show up to that day of trial and maybe change our tune a little bit? Maybe soften the message we'd been promoting? Maybe look out for our own necks, if I could put it that way? Paul says, that's not even on the table for me. I don't care what happens to me. I want Jesus to be made great here. I want him to be glorified. And Paul isn't just talking a big game here. He's not just someone who can write really inspiring things. Paul demonstrates this mentality with his life. I mean, this is the guy who went on three missions trips around the Mediterranean, bringing the gospel to people, making disciples, confronting false teachers. He says in Romans, I want to go somewhere where the name of Christ has never been preached. This is Paul who endures all sorts of things for the cause of Christ. Let me just read some of these to you from 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I faced imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false teachers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Do you think Paul is serious about making Jesus' name great? Just the sheer number of times I mentioned the word danger should give you an indicator about the kind of life that Paul lived. One thing is incredibly obvious to us. Paul's sole focus in life 
was to make Jesus' name great. But you may remember, it wasn't always that way. Paul wasn't always a champion of the gospel. In fact, there was a time when Paul's mission in life was to stamp out Christianity. He hunted people down and brought them to prison. Paul tells us that when the vote was cast to put people to death, he threw in his vote with those who would kill believers. In his own words, Paul says that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So what changed? How did Paul go from being this enemy of the gospel to one of its greatest advocates? He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, on his way to go round up more Christians and haul them back into prison. Jesus himself appeared to Paul and commissioned him to bring the gospel to people. And from that point forward, Paul's life was changed. I mean, like days later, he's in a synagogue declaring that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the son of God. He switches sides like so fast, if we could put it that way, and becomes a fierce defender and proclaimer of the gospel. And later, when rehearsing his testimony, Paul rehearses his impressive pedigree and says, but I count all of these things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul knew that even being, as he put it, blameless under the law was not enough. Being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, was not enough to earn him a right standing with God. That was only possible because of Christ, through faith in Christ. I'm convinced that what enables Paul to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is because he hasn't forgotten what Jesus has done for him. Because it's always in front of him. And he knows, my life is Christ's. This is what he's done for me. When Paul is released, or if he's released from prison, he's not going to kick his feet up and enjoy some R&R. Paul's not going to take an early retirement. He's not going to go waste his days pursuing things that have no eternal value. Paul is going to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus if he gets out of prison. And if somehow he does not, if he dies in prison, if it's determined that he's guilty and he's put to death, Paul says, even better. Because to die is gain. It's to be in the presence of my Savior, in the presence of the one who lived and bled and died not just for humanity in a general kind of vague sort of way, but for me. Paul understood that. Let's just read uh, from verse 21 on through 26 to see how this kind of finishes up here. Paul says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You read this, and Paul talks about the outcome of what is going to take place here in prison. And honestly, it sounds like he can't really make up his mind about which he wants more. Certainly, it's more beneficial for the church. If he stays alive and is released from prison, he can uh, pursue that fruitful labor. But honestly, there's a part of Paul that's like, I wouldn't mind being executed either. In fact, that's my desire. Because death brings Christ. You have to love the Christian perspective on death here. So many people view death as the scariest thing they're going to encounter, as the biggest uncertainty, a giant question mark at the end of their life. And Paul just stands there and says, I'm ready. I can't wait. It's my desire is to be with Jesus Christ. I keep saying it over and over and over again. Paul's life was consumed with knowing and proclaiming Jesus. We're going to take a couple of minutes now for application as we think about the example that Paul puts forward for us. And I want to begin the application section by asking this question. What are you living for? Better yet, maybe we could phrase it this way. For to me, to live is fill in the blank. How would you answer that question up to this point in your life? If you really wanted to uh, have a bit of a wake-up call, ask somebody else. Someone who knows you really well. Someone who sees how you spend your time. They know where your money goes. They know what you love. Would they say, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. For them to live is Christ. Or would they say something else? I don't want you guys to think that I'm exempt from asking myself this question. I thought about the last month or so, how I've spent just my free time. Uh, a lot of checking in on sports, a lot of camping videos, Not a whole lot of time thinking about how I could advance the kingdom of Christ. Certainly, I spend some time thinking about how to protect and guard and advance my own kingdom. But Jesus? Is he really what I'm living for? Is that evidenced by my life? I want to be clear here that living for Christ extends past our free time. It's not just that part of the day in the morning when we read our devotions or the time of day after we come home from work. Living for Christ encapsulates everything we do. 
So we sit down to work through our taxes and we say, what would be honoring to Christ? We go to work and we're tempted to not give our whole effort and we say, but what would be honoring to Christ? We set our budget for the month. We have conversations about how to educate our kids. We talk to our spouse. And all the time, we should be asking, what would honor Christ? If this is not the case, if you find that you're going through life, and maybe Jesus isn't at the center of it, can I remind you this morning that in some ways, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Following Jesus requires we deny ourselves. No longer is life about what I want to do. It's not about my agenda. It's not about making my name great and make sure that my life just works out exactly as I planned it. Our lives in following Jesus are about him. It was reminiscent to me of what Pastor John has been telling us from Romans chapter 6. When he describes the reality that has taken place, for those who are in Christ, there has been a transfer of masters. And we are now slaves to God to produce works of righteousness. I think that Romans 12 perhaps puts this whole idea best when it says that we, when Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. It's a letting go of control of our life and letting God use us however he sees fit. This is the Christian life. I, I came across a story this week about a missionary by the name of James Calvert. And I think James' story captures well what it means to live for Christ and to die to ourselves. So James was born in England in the 1800s. And uh, long story short, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about his calling, but he ended up uh, going to the island of Fiji as a missionary. Now, Fiji is off of the coast of Australia, and in the 1800s, I don't think it was a vacation destination like it is today, uh, because there were cannibals on the island. If that gives you any sort of idea about the kind of people that James was bringing the gospel to. It's said that as he was on the ship to Fiji, the captain of the boat actually tried to talk him out of it and said, James, I'm paraphrasing here, you know that if you go through with this, you and the people that are with you are going to die. James' reply was incredible. It's worth thinking about even past this because James said back to this captain who was warning him, he said, we died before we came here. Think about that. Do you understand what James is saying? He's already died once. 
to himself, to his comfort, to his way of life. And he said, Jesus, whatever you need, if that means going to cannibals in Fiji, well, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Could I encourage you this morning that this response of living for Christ should not be one of drudgery? This isn't something where we just kind of hang our shoulders and shuffle along through the Christian life and just kind of gaze longingly at other people who get to live however they want and think, huh, must be nice. No way. Can I remind you to think about what Jesus has done for you as an individual? You were in a pretty bleak spot before Christ. You would have rightly heard the verdict, guilty, when you stood before God. And yet Christ, in his love, stood in our place and on the cross took our sins upon himself. Think back just over the course of this last week. How many sins have you committed that you deserve to be condemned for? Maybe countless. Jesus took those sins on himself. He gave his life for you and for I. And I'm afraid that sometimes we say to Jesus, thank you very much for heaven, and we keep living however we want. That is incompatible with what the scriptures expect of us. If you are in Christ, you die to yourself, and you follow him, and he becomes the focus and the center of all that we do, of every decision that we make. So let me plead with you this morning to give some serious thought to what part of your life needs to be surrendered to Christ. It's very possible that there's just a part of your life that you haven't even factored it into your decision-making, how Christ needs to be brought into that. Maybe it's the entertainment you consume, or the amount of time you allot to things, or the conversations you have, the way that you talk. Maybe you need to evaluate the tendency that we all have to exalt ourselves. It exists within all of us. I want to be made great, but the call to follow Jesus is a call to make his name great. Does Jesus come up in conversations you have with people? Are you convinced that Jesus is awesome? That he's worth talking about? Or is he just a a little sliver of the pie in your life? These are serious questions we have to ask ourselves. And I hope that we could echo with Paul, for to me, to live is Christ that people would be able to observe that in our lives. We saw the way the world lives. We saw the answers to their questions. A lot of things consumed their lives that we would categorize as wood, hay, and stubble. There's no eternal significance to them. Don't you want to stand before Jesus someday? 
and see the wounds in his hands and the scar in his side and say, lift my life for you just as you gave your life for me. To do what Paul says in Romans 12 of presenting your body a living sacrifice. Our lives belong to Jesus. Please consider that this week. How can we follow Jesus better? How can we make him a bigger part of our life? It's all-encompassing. We can do this. Let's encourage one another to do this. This has to be our motto, if I could put it that way, as Christians. It's all about Jesus. We know what he's done. We're convinced he's worth talking about. We're convinced he's worth living and maybe even dying for. Let's pray. Lord, this is a serious question. Um, one that I need to think about. We're so distracted. We're easily convinced to do things that exalt us. We seek our own comfort. We just ask this morning that you would graciously turn our eyes to Christ, that we'd see him in all of his glory, our Savior, and purpose today to just start living for him, to bring him into every component of our life, and to submit our wills and our decision-making to what would be honoring to him. Lord, as we do this, would you let our community see it? that they would know we're not like everybody else. Our, our goals and attitudes are different about life. We're living for things that are eternal, that have true significance. Help us, Lord, to follow you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Let's stand as we close. We'll close with, for me to live as Christ.